At VMware, every hiring manager is responsible for hiring the engineers for their own team. At Facebook, all engineers are recruited in a centralized fashion, and then hiring managers of individual teams would just go into boot camp when the new hires were near graduation and would recruit out of boot camp. One downside was leaders in the engineering organization didn't feel personally accountable for making the hiring happen. It turns out that if you declare to everybody you know that you're an angel investor, they start introducing companies to you. I thought, what would business school cost? All right, I'm going to take that much money, and I'm going to split it into a bunch of small checks, and I'm going to start investing just to learn. And along the way, I learned a lot about my taste and what things I'm optimistic and pessimistic about. And probably a year into this, like I woke up one day and I'm like, oh, maybe investing is my path. Hi, and welcome back to Venture Confidential, a series of interviews with top minds in venture capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. In today's episode, I interview Jocelyn Goldfein, a partner at Zeta Venture Partners. In this episode, we talk about her time spent overhauling Facebook's technical recruiting process, how she got into angel investing, and how she went about making her first investment in the security space. As always, if you've got questions or comments, email me at vc at heavybit.com. Jocelyn, welcome to Venture Confidential. Thanks, it's great to be here. You graduated from Stanford with a degree in computer science and quickly worked your way into some engineering management positions. You spent seven years at VMware and then were an engineering director at Facebook. Let's start there. What was it like working with VMware during that time? It was amazing. I mean, I joined VMware in spring of 2003 and we doubled headcount and revenue every year for the next four or five years in a row. And like doubling might not sound crazy to the maybe small startup founders who are listening, but we were probably 300 people when I joined, 100 million in revenue. And so doubling on that scale, it's not the first double, it's like the second and third double that that really become overwhelming. So it's like you're running so fast just to try to take advantage of the opportunity in front of you, just to deliver the goods. And it becomes so important to just triage, to just mm-hmm. prioritize what is the most important thing I can be doing right now, knowing that I cannot get to everything. But there was so much good. I mean, that company was full of brilliant people that I learned so much from, just incredible people to work with. And there was a, a unity, in, especially in those early days, of just sense of mission you know, enterprise infrastructure may seem kind of dry and dusty, but I remember the very first VM world. It was in LA. There were maybe a thousand people there. And if you went to that conference and you walked around in a t-shirt that said engineer on the back of it, customers would would run up to you and like they would want to give you a hug. They would have tears in your eyes. Like what VMware did for sysadmins, for administrators, for for operations people, it just transformed their lives. It transformed their careers. I mean, it didn't, it transformed also the data center, but it changed the way, like it used to be they had a job where the ratio of humans to machines was like one to 20 and, and, and they were just lost in manual tedious effort, racking and stacking. And if somebody asked them for a server, it was like, fill out this form and triplicate and wait for six months for me to get to you. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't because IT wanted to be the department of no, it was because like that was the lead time for them to do anything because they had so many just cost and resource constraints. And because there was so much capital already invested in the hardware fleet that was wasted. And we unlock it all. And all these things that they had to do by hand that were manual, like all the manual labor parts of their job went away. They could be strategic. They could get in front of demand instead of be behind it. They could enable self-service. They could automate things with virtual machines that were physical tasks with physical machines. And they got to start being the department of yes. We made them superheroes. And so just like that sensation of like truly being beloved by your customers. And I'd had previous experiences as a vendor where like customers just kind of resented us or or they were just demanding, like we've paid you a ton of money, now you better deliver what we expect. Like probably a lot of B2B startups have had that experience of of you know customers really feeling like, you know, they can they can tell you to jump and and you gotta wonder how high. And that experience was just reversed at VMware, where we just had such fans. I have to call them they were fans of our software. And it was so motivating, you know, to deliver and to meet their needs and to help them take the next step. There were so many great things about that time. You wrote something I really liked in uh, a recent essay. You said, I'm more interested in building tools that affect how people work than how they play. Mm. Was this a theme that 
was resonant for you heading into VMware, or did you sort of catch the enterprise bug while you were working there? You know, that's interesting. Because my first job out of college was also enterprise software. My the startup that I co-founded was enterprise software. So VMware was like, you know, third or or fourth in a list of of enterprise software companies that I'd worked for. My summer internship, believe it or not, I was the first summer intern ever hired at Netscape. Right. So I had had some consumer experience before all this. They didn't have a formal intern program until 96, but in 95, like this one engineering manager out of Apple, Bob Jung, decided he had to have an intern, and so he just hired me on the side. Um, so I was the only one that summer, and then I went back in 96, and it was like a real company and had a real intern program. It's totally transformed. No, I don't think it started at VMware. I think maybe it's that I love to work. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, you know, I mean, I guess I enjoy downtime as much as the next person, but like if you ask me what I do for fun, it's like probably work. So that and spend time with my family, of course. So, you know, yeah, I think that was probably always just more engaging to me. At Facebook, you were responsible for overhauling how they hired technical staff members. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that transformation. Um, so Facebook was was growing more modestly than VMware. We were only growing 50% a year. I joined in 2010, and we'd hit that 50% growth rate pretty consistently. It was about 1,800 employees when I joined in, in 2010, and had that probably in the middle of the year, wrapped up the year a little more than that. And then I want to say in 2011, the goal was to hire something like 300 engineers, and we missed. We hired 250 which was like a sizable miss, and it was like it's meaningful. It's like there's projects we don't get to pursue because we don't have enough engineers. And the view at the time in the company was that was recruiting's miss. Mm. But that's like kind of a perverse take, actually. Like recruiting is there to support us in our engineering hiring, but ultimately it's engineering that can't deliver the goods. Like if we were given budget and we don't hire, yeah, um, that's really our responsibility. And at VMware. Every hiring manager, and I think typically at most companies, every hiring manager, sorry, there's a long digression, but it will come back around. At VMware, every hiring manager is responsible for hiring the engineers for their own team. And so there's clear accountability if, if hiring goals are missed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know, rolls up to directors and VPs and so on. At Facebook, all engineers are recruited in a centralized fashion into Facebook's new hire onboarding program called Bootcamp. Mm-hmm. And then hiring managers of individual teams, like the, the manager of the search team or the newsfeed team, would just go into Bootcamp when the new hires were near graduation and would recruit out of Bootcamp. So they kind of viewed it as recruiting's job is to stock the pond and then we'll fish people out of the pond. Well, there's a lot of good in this kind of centralized approach. There's a lot of efficiency. I actually think there's a lot of cultural benefits. I think people should be citizens of Facebook first and their team second. But one downside was leaders in the engineering organization didn't feel personally accountable for making the hiring happen. And I think you really need to, because I don't think people join a recruiter. They join a team. They join a leader. They join coworkers. And so uh, I felt very strongly that engineering needed to, to step up and take responsibility, especially because, so remember in, in, in 2011, they were supposed to hire 300. They missed, they hired 250. But you know, we'd continue to grow in our 50% growth rate. And then 2012, we sort of knew we were going to IPO. Mm-hmm. And so we felt like it was an opportunity actually to increase our growth rate. And so we kind of really late in the game, like November or December, came to recruiting in 2011 and said, hey, for 2012, actually, we want you to hire 900 engineers. You know, triple <laughs> the number they had missed, you know, last month. And the mood in recruiting was, was not very jubilant. <laughs> Um, at this news, I think it's it's fair to say they felt like an albatross was around their neck, and they were set up to fail and just completely doomed. And I'd been sort of thinking these thoughts about, gee, engineering should be more accountable for this. And I'd be partnering with recruiting in a lot of areas, and I just felt like an engineering leader needed to step up and take responsibility for this number. It was such a big step up, and it was going to require transformation. Like you can't just hit that number by tripling the number of recruiters. Like just. Tripling bodies is not gonna is not the answer to this kind of scale. You need a more leveraged approach, and there were a lot of inefficiencies in the way that we hired that were visible to me. That was going to be hard for recruiting to change because it meant like really getting to engineering and changing how we thought about the decisions we were making. So I basically went to my boss, who Mike Schrepfer, who was CTO and head of all of engineering, and said, "I think I need to go like go be point on recruiting for you know six to twelve months." 
And he's like, that's bananas. And then, um, then I repeated this offer to, to Cheryl, and she's like, mm, I don't know. Then I suggested it to Zuck, and Zuck's like, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't give up until I got the answer I wanted, and uh, I managed to talk Shrep and Cheryl into it too. So then I focused pretty exclusively on our hiring and onboarding for the next, uh, it was 11 months, I pretty much called it, and did all kinds of things. The way we conducted Phone screens had a lot of problems. That was one of my, you know, one of the one of the bees in my bonnet. I thought we were losing a lot of great talent at that initial filter because it was a single point of failure. Versus, you know, you bring someone on site, you put them through the ringer, they meet with four different people, the results get reviewed by our hiring committee. Like we can debate, like maybe Facebook's like missing some good talent because we're not taking enough risks at that stage. But like every decision's really reviewed and thought through. Mm-hmm. At the phone screen stage, like we're losing people left and right because someone had a bad day. You're saying you had a high false negative rate at Correct. the screen stage. This is not a problem startups should worry about. When you're trying to hire 900 engineers, you better believe false negatives are an immense problem. And we had the ethos of a startup. We had mm. the hiring process mm. that was built for a startup, right? That was built for high quality, low volume. Now we needed high quality, high volume. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of Facebook exceptionalism, and and we, you know. You know, again, going back to like, how do you go from low volume to high volume? Like, when it's low volume, you can just focus on people who are dying to work for you. Your Facebook, lots of people want to work for you. Well, it turns out not everybody wants to work for you or knows that they should want to work for you. And so, when you need to crank into high volume, it's not enough to send recruiters out knocking on doors. You actually need to like give them some air support and mm. lay some groundwork on really telling the story of why people who might not imagine themselves at Facebook should want to be there. And you may need to put in some work persuading people that Facebook is great for them, as opposed to just like, oh, well, if they don't see that Facebook's awesome, they must not belong. And you might also need to open your mind about roles. So we had done most of our hiring really looking for generalists, people that were kind of stem cells and could be plugged in anywhere. And that's great and will take you a long way. But there was a trade-off in generality and quality, and it was Pretty clear, both that we needed more specialists in up and coming areas like mobile, where we just like part of what took us so darn long to get our arms around mobile was just we did not have begin to have enough mobile engineers in 2011 and 2012. Um, And we needed to go hire a ton of mobile engineers. And the hiring process to even interpret whether you're in front of a great engineer looks really different for a specialist than a generalist. And so we had to stop throwing specialists into a generalist interview process, we had to design an interview process for them. And we had to also sort of look at the other work we were doing and say, you know what, rather than lower the quality of generalists that we're bringing in in order to hit this volume target, let's understand where high-quality specialists could actually fill a lot of these roles, and then let's go keep quality high by getting more specialized. And so there were just a ton of things that we played with on just the recruiting and process side. How do we do sourcing? How do we do coordination? How do we think about the culture and incentives of our recruiting team. And I think it was just, it was time. We built a recruiting playbook for a small company with small targets and it didn't scale. <laughs> and when that happens, you don't like keep patching it or throw more bodies or more servers at it, right? Just, just as you're architecting a solution, like you're trying to architect a really scalable website, mm-hmm. like at some point you go beyond what you built it for and you can scale for a while by just throwing hardware at it, but eventually you've got to refactor. Eventually you've got to re-architect. And that's where we were. We'd gotten as far as we could throwing more recruiter bodies at fundamentally small, low-scale process, and we had to re-architect. You touched upon a bunch of different things there. You said we changed the way we screened, we started doing more selling during the recruiting process, we started sort of shifting the way we looked at roles. I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the changes you made but on the sourcing side? Well, there wasn't a single silver bullet mm. on the sourcing side. It was more like a hail of lead bullets. So, like, I don't have like one mega change to talk about. You know, one thing I wanted to do was get sourcers very a lot, like, give them better partnership with engineering leaders, give them the sense that they were supporting an internal team. And of course, we weren't hiring for individual teams, but we could hire for individual roles, right? So, if you're hiring for iOS, if you're hiring for Android, like there may be many, many engineering managers inside Facebook. You know, the newsfeed team wants iOS engineers, and then the search team wants Android engineers. You know, everybody has these needs. But I can probably find a couple managers who will put their hands up and say, "I will rep for Android. Mm-hmm. I will rep for iOS." 
I will rep for kind of what we call, I divided generalists into two categories, product generalists and systems generalists, essentially front-end and back-end. And I got volunteers to to be on point for that too. So creating more of a sense of partnership where an engineering managers or leaders are on the hook and helping the recruiter achieve the goal together, just I think created a sense of motivation and urgency and gave them a place to go to get unblocked and to just get help and air support if they needed it. We threw a broader net on, you know, companies and geography. We opened up a lot of international. I was pretty aggressive about lobbying for larger um, larger numbers of college hires. Mm. That's that's something I've always believed in, especially since my first job out of college. And so we we probably saw those numbers ramp up to over a third of our hires, maybe more. Were and and campus recruiting was a place where Facebook was great. I mean, just a machine. And the international side could help beef up there too. We spent a long time doing analytics. So, so I guess one perspective I had was, you know, actually we've got a good amount of data here. Like, let's go analyze it and understand. And so we we spent more time understanding what sources were working for us and which ones were not. Not just what's likely to make us want to interview someone, but what's likely to make someone actually get a job, like actually land at Facebook in the end. Um, and so, just kind of refining the profiles there. Diversity was a big theme that year, and um, that we were trying to get our arms around, and that I could try to be a lot of help. We doubled down on the events strategy. We let me see. I think we'd opened up New York and maybe London that year too, so that gave us some more geography to source for. And then the big, probably one of the big important pushes to me was to really not just double down on our internal referral program, but to fix it. You know, I, I think internal referrals can be absolutely some of your best sources of hires. Like, if someone who's already here vouches for you, you're, it's that much more likely that you belong. But other way around too, right? If someone who's already here vouches for Facebook, the candidate's more likely to really give Facebook a shot. And we, you know, our process for collecting and acting on referrals was just had all these like weird kinks and bottlenecks mm. that we needed to sort through. And um, and one of the recruiting leaders. Took point on that. He's an amazing guy. He's now, I think, running technical recruiting at Slack. But he just took point on that and like shook every bit of it loose. So, sorry, like no mega solutions here. Sourcing's hard. <laughs> Sourcing at large scale is even harder. And there is no one thing to do. Um, I will say that we spend a lot of time analyzing response rates to emails. And I had this intuition. Here's an aha. I had this intuition as an engineering manager that. You know that probably like really well crafted personal emails would generate a higher response rate than like the boilerplate almost like telemarketing ish emails that you get from recruiters. And, like I'd always kind of wonder, oh my god, why do like why do they send those things? Who mm-hmm. are these people? And like it's so embarrassing when like somebody gets one from a Facebook recruiter and posts it and it goes viral. And I'm like, oh, that's not who we are. That's just like that one. Rec- they were probably a contractor. I- well, come to find out, you know, it's sort of like wondering like. Why do we get spam? Like because spam works. Sadly, <laughs> these emails work. Well, here's the deal. Uh, this is my interpretation of the data. Either you are job hunting, or you're not. Mm. And you may not be job hunting in like a visible way where you've put out there on LinkedIn that you're job hunting. Like you're in a job. You have a job. You're not telling anybody that you're job hunting. You're you're stealth job hunting. But you're on the hunt because you're not happy where you are. And you know, Facebook is a brand that everybody knows. So either you're interested in working for Facebook or you're not. Like, there's nobody out there who hasn't thought of Facebook. So if you get an email from Facebook asking if you want to interview for a job, either you're job hunting and Facebook would be on your list, in which case you respond yes, no matter how badly written that email is. Like, you know, that email would have to be toxic for you to say no. Right. Or you are not job hunting, or you have really bad associations with Facebook, in which case your answer is no, pretty much regardless of how well written that email is. And so, like when recruiters talk about passive sourcing and like sending emails to uncover these passive candidates who are happy at their day jobs, like I don't think that's really what's going on. What's really going on with passive sourcing is all the people who are actually job hunting are not admitting it. And so, those emails are actually just a brute force search of the complete space of people who exist and you find out whether the is job hunting bullion is true based on who replies. And so the query to find out 
it turns out the form of that query doesn't matter very much, Other, except insofar as like you know it gets posted and makes you look bad. And I do think like there might be people out there who are job hunting for whom Facebook's brand does not appeal. If they got a personal warm outreach from an individual they admire, they might take a cup of coffee. They might be willing to get it. So under those circumstances, like but that's like a really narrow. And it turns out that those boilerplate emails, which you can copy and paste, like so. So what makes a really great sourcer great? Like I would have said going in, like oh, an ability to really connect with the candidate, a ability to really recognize who's going to be good here, and to like recognize talent. Uh uh-uh. uh Like once I had the numbers in front of me, it was brutally clear. What makes someone a great sourcer is great time management skills, mm. and it's just the ability to send. It's just volume wins. If you send more emails, you will get more hires. I would say right up to the leadership level. Like once people are in kind of executive, very senior roles, then like a boilerplate email, even if you are job hunting and you would like to talk to Facebook, you're probably not responding to a boilerplate email. So so once you get senior enough, then actually like all my concepts about very personalized outreach, that becomes true. But it's like a low volume. Now you're in a low volume game again. Sure. Yeah. You left Facebook in 2014. Mm-hmm. What prompted that move? I guess I just I got addicted to a vertical learning curve. Mm. Probably when I was at VMware. I mean, coming straight out of college, you learn a ton in your first few years anyway because you don't know very much, right? So mm-hmm. it's easy to exponentially grow off a very small number. And then I did my own startup and that was also like a really steep growth curve. And then I landed at VMware and it was just like, whoa, like again, vertical growth curve, but now we're at a scale that really matters, right? Like real revenue, real customers. For me, like real scope where I was owning, you know, significant products and, and significant teams and complexity. And then transitioning from VMware to Facebook, you know, initially whole new domain, whole new technology stack, you know, Facebook truly pioneering a lot of these techniques, growth ethos, kind of the what we think of as the lean startup methodology, but this very iterative approach to products. So much to learn in mm-hmm. my first few years at Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then as the years wore on, I kind of started noticing when I graduated from college, my career ambition was to become VP of engineering. I reached that level in 2007. <laughs> now I've been kind of functioning at that level for five or six years across two really different companies in really different domains. And like I don't want to declare like I have total mastery of the engineering leadership function because you know that's a lie. You can it's like Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, right? You can learn forever. But I felt like what made my job difficult was that the problems were difficult, not that I needed to learn new skills to tackle them. And mm. um, and I started having these like, you know, oh, maybe my twenties and thirties were for growth, and then my forties will be when I like harvest and like put to use all these skills that I built. And I sat with that thought for about like a millisecond, and then I'm like, yeah, I'm not done. I'm not done growing, but if I stick around doing the same kind of job I've been doing for the last 15 years, you know that might stop me from growing. Mm-hmm. And so I love Facebook. I think it's an amazing company, product, mission. I think it's one of the best leadership teams. You know, I think Mark Zuckerberg belongs on the Mount Rushmore of technologists, along with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. But I didn't see how I personally would keep growing and, and reach my potential if I stayed. And that was a really tough decision. <laughs> I spent a long time researching and thinking about options, and I finally just decided, no, I got to go some, do something really completely different with my life. And um, when I left Facebook, I didn't know what that would be. Like I played with thoughts like, yeah, it's like I think I have another career arc in me before I go dedicate myself to philanthropy and service. I have no interest in you know public office. You know, maybe if I'd been making this decision in 2016, it would have been different. But in 2014, that that didn't seem like an appealing path. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about going back to grad school. I, you know, I thought about lots of things. But you know, in the end, like being a caricature of myself, I landed on probably the same two ideas that a lot of people in my position land on, which is like, well, I could start a company and become a CEO, and and I would have to learn a lot of new things to do that. Or you know, maybe there's this like VC left turn. And I thought, well, I don't know which, but I do know I don't want to start a company for the sake of creating a job for myself to do. Like, you know, I've seen that movie before. And I think you create a startup when you have a mission you're so passionate about achieving that you can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. And so 
I thought, well, I'm not going to stumble over that mission, like sitting here at Facebook being really busy and really comfortable in my job. And so I got to just put myself out there. And so I just, um, I wrote this goodbye note to my coworkers and I, and I posted it publicly too saying, I'm, I'm an angel investor. <laughs> That's my next, like, I'm leaving Facebook, so long farewell, you're wonderful, and I'm off to go be an angel investor. And I made an angel list you know, profile, and I changed my LinkedIn, and like, all in the strength of having written, like, mind you, zero checks. But it turns out that if you declare to everybody you know that you're an angel investor, they start introducing companies to you. And then if you blog and like, show up and give you know, public talks and tech talks around different companies, and you end them all by saying, and by the way, I'm an angel investor, and I'd like to make startups, like, lo and behold... <laughs> You meet lots of startups. And um, and I just thought of it at the time really like kind of a do-it-yourself EIR program. Mm. Like I'll put myself into the flow of founders and ideas and like my idea will come to me. And so I, I staked myself um, like basically tuition money. I thought, what would business school cost? All right, I'm going to take that much money and I'm going to split it into a bunch of small checks and I'm going to start investing just to learn and to, to be exposed to these ideas and, and these people. And I started doing that as more or less a full-time job. And I got pretty busy. I started writing about a check a month, not on purpose. It wasn't like, oop, November 30th, I better write my check of the month. Um, but they just, you know, sometimes I'd do two in a week and sometimes two months would go by and it just averaged out. And along the way, I learned a lot about my taste and what I believe to be true about the future and, and what things I'm optimistic and pessimistic about. And I learned that it was like, Kind of boring to have money in a company that I never saw or heard from, except maybe like a little investor update once in a while. But it was really fun and really enriching and engaging to be invested in startups where I spent time. And so, probably a year into this, like I woke up one day and I'm like, oh, maybe investing is my path. Like the mission hasn't fallen out of the sky on me, but like actually helping a lot of founders feels really great. And it feels really leveraged. Mm. Like if you think about it, that was what I had to do. Like that's what I'm good at. Like at VMware, everything doubling out from under you, your full-time job is figuring out how to make things scale. At Facebook, like first of all, scale was the name of the game of the whole company. But like my particular successes, the things I accomplished there, whether it was the recruiting overhaul, whether it was newsfeed adopting machine learning, whether it was the pivot to mobile, all those things were about how do we achieve greater scale? And what I'm good at is scale. And so all of a sudden, it was like, oh, all this know-how, all this operating ability I have, these things I know how to do, I can leverage them across 10, 20 startups instead of like a single company that I work for. And that leverage, the only way to get scale is with leverage. And so that leverage was like a light bulb going off. It was like, oh, yes, this is how I make my mark. This is how I have the most impact. And by the way, it's a phenomenal way to learn a lot, too. Like, you are never bored in this job. It is a buffet. So around then is when kind of the light dawned, and I thought, oh, I think my next career move is not founder, it's investor. You joined Zeta January of 2017. That's right. Who is Zeta? Let's start there. Zeta is an early-stage VC firm that invests in early-stage startups solving business problems with data. We look for data network effects, which usually these days means machine learning and AI. And in terms of stage, we invest in what's traditionally called the seed round, although you know the nomenclature here is like a really broad tent. Probably like the fence posts of the round we participate in will lead or co-lead are between one and five million. But in truth, we like to think of ourselves as Series A classic. Because we operate like the Series A firms did 20 years ago, which is we're the first institutional money, we write a large check, we take board seats, we do priced rounds, we hold reserves, we roll up our sleeves, we work with the startup. When I offer a term sheet that includes a board seat for myself, I'm basically offering, it's a part-time job offer to me, working for the startup. And we look at that. It that way, mm -hmm. you know, not as like here we're buying a lottery ticket, and if you do well, we'll come back and put more money in. Um, this is the round where we are all in, um, and it's a, a concentrated fund. We'll make twenty or twenty-five investments. We're on fund two. We'll make twenty or twenty-five investments in the second fund, and we're six investments in. So lots of lots of dry powder. I got to uh, start at Zeta right at the outset of uh, deploying fund two. 
and it's all B2B, which is what, you know, which is what gets me excited. What I like to do is, uh, is change how people work. And Zeta was founded, Zeta is named for the Zettabyte, which is, um, your listeners may not be familiar, but if you think about the, the quantities in which we measure data, you know, everybody's familiar with the the gigabyte, and these days, like the the terabyte and the the petabyte and the exabyte, and the you may have heard of the yottabyte. Well, the zettabyte is the next order of magnitude beyond yottabyte. And the founding belief of Zeta, my partner Mark Gorenberg, started the company with the insight that it has become easier and easier to make software. The tools are better, the training is better. We're all standing on the shoulders of the of giants now. The infrastructure cloud is so much simpler. We're in the, the era of the capitally efficient startup that that just workflow software is basically a commodity. If you can build it, somebody else can build it. And his belief was what will make the next generation of winners, what will make truly differentiated companies, the value lies not in the software itself. It lies in the data and the intelligence that powers the software. And what we look for when we invest in companies is not just that that there's AI or machine learning involved for the sake of it. Um, we look for data network effects, which means we're almost always investing in something that's sort of verticalized, either around an industry or a line of business, rather than a pure horizontal play. We're looking for something that can acquire proprietary data sets, usually by working with their own customer base. And those network effects come because as you sign up each additional customer, you're training your models, you're offering recommendations or insights or decisions, you're doing something with your AI to make the software smarter. And each additional customer you sign up gives you access to additional data sets, which makes the product better for every customer before you. It's sort of like Facebook's the classic example of network effects, the social network effect, which is the more users that are there on Facebook, the more everybody benefits. It's why a new social network that is a you know a feature for feature copy of Facebook that launches itself in say 2010 from say one of the best software companies <laughs> in the world, while being a feature for feature exact copy of Facebook, it cannot displace Facebook because it doesn't have the one thing you're there for, which is the other people. And so network effects like that can exist in data too, where even if you launched a feature for feature copy of my product because you don't have the data set that powers it. You can't make recommendations as good. You can't give insights as meaningful, and you'll never catch up. And that enables startups to build, you know, what investors love to look for—a moat, a competitive advantage. Uh, and so that's that's why we're excited about AI. I mean, many there are many problems we can solve with AI that haven't been solvable before. Some of them will be great investments. Some won't. But you know, it's not for the sake of hype. It's not technology for the sake of technology. It's for the sake of being able to build distinctive, powerful solutions that have compounding value for your customers. I'd love to walk through a member of the Zeta portfolio and sort of how they demonstrate a B2B network effect. So, for example, one of our startups is called Tractable. And Tractable has built a computer vision technology that can look at a photo of a damaged car and can identify whether this is something that should be repaired or replaced. And they sell this technology to auto insurance companies who can now automate or enhance the job of the claims adjuster. So instead of having to send a human being out to make this assessment, the end user can take the picture, send it in, get a recommendation, get an estimate, and take it straight in. So this is a win-win-win all around, right? It's clearly great for you as the customer of the auto insurance company that if you're in an accident, you can take a picture, like you don't have to schedule a meeting and wait three days and miss work. Um, but you can get an instant answer. It's great for the auto insurance company because they can become more efficient, more nimble, and hopefully get right answers a lot more. And it works well too in how they manage their supply chain with and their relationships with different repair shops. But this is kind of a hard computer vision problem. And uh, Tractable has worked really hard to accumulate a good training data set. But now that they have contracts with some of the largest auto insurance manufacturers in the world, each one of those is now sending more and more photos through the training model. And it makes a, a decision, it makes a recommendation, it, it classifies the photo as repairable or, or replaceable. Um, and then somebody takes an action. And then here's what makes it a virtuous loop they get to find out. If that was right, like the car ends up in the shop, and they get to find out the result. 
And so not only are they getting more and more photos to look on, more and more photos to make a recommendation, they get to find out if they were right or wrong, which feeds back into the model. And so you know, if somebody were to come along now and try to replicate what Tractable's built, they could, just couldn't catch up. Like There's such a profound data advantage. And each customer they sign up benefits from Tractable's models being smarter and smarter because of the additional data that each customer gives them. I had a really fun interview with an investor called Bubba Morocco recently. In which oh, he Bubba's said, a great friend. Oh, we were yeah. at Facebook together. Oh, right, right. And he talked a lot about what business development looked like at Facebook. He said there's two kinds of investors. There's folks who make their first bet right off the bat, and there's folks who wait a long time to make their first play. Which kind are you? Well, I would say as an angel investor, um, I dived right in and made really quick decisions. And as a VC, uh, I'm definitely in the second category. I just made my first investment about a month ago. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. I'm really excited about them. Who did you invest in? Well, it is a stealth startup uh, based in the Midwest, and they're building solutions for IoT security. I'd love to hear a little bit about your process. How did you land on this startup? Well, so Zeta's trying to solve business problems with data. So we're looking at applications of AI and machine learning. And in particular, perhaps thanks to my many years at VMware and also at Facebook, I'm really excited about the potential for infrastructure and what machine learning and AI can do for infrastructure. And security, I would call sort of infrastructure adjacent. And I think there's a bunch of reasons why security is a great market for AI. In fact, it's such a great market for AI that I would say you know, AI security startups are sort of like peak hype cycle now where, you know, chief security officers have have heard it so much as a buzzword, it's just noise and it almost like pisses them off. So if you are a security startup out there applying AI to security problems, you know, I recommend that you market yourself around the problem you solve and, and don't don't mention AI even. But that said, I think nonetheless there is a reason, I think there's reality behind the hype, which is that Security is like an asymmetrical battlefield and the defenders are losing, the attackers are winning, like because the attacker just has to find one way to get in, one way to penetrate, whereas the defender has to close every last hole. And the complexity and surface area, so it's it's a losing battle. And in fact, there there are too many nodes, there are too many configurations, there's just, there's just too much to look at to secure everything. At the same time, all of those factors, all of the vulnerability, all of the surface area, like it is known in a quantifiable structured way. Mm. We have every network packet that flows through the wires. There's nothing that's like hidden or secret. So something where like all the data exists, it's there to be understood and looked at. It's just an overwhelming amount that no human can make sense of. Like that is a problem humans cannot solve and AI can. So it's been something I believe from very early that there are going to be a lot of really phenomenal winners um, applying AI to security problems. You know, that many that are already well underway, and I think many more in the next five to ten years. And so um, that was a thesis I'd held. I had looked at probably fifty or sixty security companies already when I met this one. And um, I had talked to a lot of chief security officers about what problems were high priority for them. And what were merely nice to have. I want to back up a step there because you, there's sort of a magic leap there. We said, oh, I talked to 50 or 60 security companies. Mm. We talk a bunch about sourcing this podcast, mm. and it's, it's something that's really hard for a lot of venture capitalists. Did you reach out to 50 or 60 security companies? Did they find you? How did you get in touch with all these folks? You know, it's amazing because so many people, before I became a VC, so many people had. Said, oh, it's like sales, like it's analogous to sales. I've never been a salesperson, so I kind of took that comparison at face value. Doing the job, I find it very analogous to recruiting. It's kind of like, you know, just as in recruiting, everybody's like really focused on like the interview and the hiring decision as like the crucial thing to be good at. But like when you're in it, it turns out like the hard part of the job as a hiring manager is sourcing. Yes. Guess what? Like people think about VCs and they wonder like, how do you diligence deals and how do you make the decision and are you a good picker? And it turns out like you can't be a great VC without great sourcing. I'll, I'll say at least that. Picking, of course, all of it matters. But you give yourself more chances to be a good picker if you have a great top of funnel. So sourcing in VC is, I will say, um, bears some but not total resemblance to recruiting. One way in which it resembles recruiting is that referrals are one of your very best sources. 
And you know, just as you know, if, if a Facebook employee has worked with this other engineer before and vouches for them, I can think it's that much more likely they're going to be a good fit to come work at Facebook. You know, if a founder in my portfolio or in my network or someone I've worked with before is starting a company, you know, that makes a much higher chance that they're doing something really interesting. But you can't stop there, right? Like you can't just sit there and wait for inbound. So it's a variety of activities. It's it's you know, sitting at the first institutional funding stage as we do, we, you know, some sources of research just aren't, you know, there for us. If you're a series A firm or a series B firm, you can find like the canonical list of all funding rounds that have gone before you and like you can brute force look at every startup that is at your stage in, in space. Um, we have to be a little bit more creative than that, but we've had a lot of success. Actually, you know, I'll go back to like the recruiting analogy again, like just as throwing events and public speaking and blogging and like all those things, like if somebody didn't know if Facebook was for them, those things help people figure out, oh, maybe Facebook's not like the stereotypes I had of it. Um, likewise, when I when Zeta publishes a blog post, when we go out there and we speak at events, like people come out of the woodwork either because they've met us at the event or because they've realized that someone they know is starting something that would be a good fit for us. So I think that that outbound is some of the most important work that we do, and that's and and it's it's honestly our motivation is to cast the widest possible net to get the most access and exposure to ideas because that's how we learn. That's how we get smarter. And that's of course how we find hopefully some really fantastic founders to partner with. Were you specifically looking for a security company or were you just doing research on companies that are empowered by large data sets? Both. Yeah. Like I always have the broad filter, broad ap- broadest aperture open. And then, you know, I was I was doing a deep dive on security for sort of three or four months there where I was sourcing all the security companies I could. And actually, I found this one after that period of time. I'd sort of moved on from security. I was looking at other things. Um, but like, it's not like, I mean, security's evergreen. It's not like, you know, oh, that market's done now. Um, so it's not like I would say, ever say no if somebody offered me an intro to a security company. And this one was, you know, maybe it was like a reward for good behavior, actually. It was really serendipitous. But I had agreed to do a favor for one of our LPs. That uh, again, for your listeners, the LP is 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 uh, you know the investors who invest in VC funds. So they're the source of our capital. And one of them wanted me to to go be on a panel at this at this conference in Columbus, Ohio. And I said yes before I looked at the flights. And then I realized you can't get in and out of Columbus from San Francisco. Like you can't like show up for two hours and then get back on a plane. Like. This was an all-day commitment. And I'm like, what else can I do in Columbus, Ohio to like, get more mileage out of this trip? And it turns out there's a really phenomenal VC firm that's home-based in Columbus, Ohio, which is Drive Capital. Right. And I shot them an email and said, I'm, said, I'm going to be in town. Do you want to catch up? And they said, that's great. We'll show you some startups. We'll, sh- you know, we'll make you some introductions. And um, you know, let's, let's hang out. And so sometimes it's just like the completely serendipitous, you know, I'd been chasing security for six months. I'd looked at tons of companies. So I also had a prepared mind that when I met this startup, I knew right away it was something special. And, you know, and I wasn't like, oh yeah, all right, I'm in Columbus. Like I've, I've, I've heard some interesting ideas and now I'm off, right? Like I was like, no, this is worth digging into. I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. What defines an extraordinary security company for you? Well, let me say what defines an extraordinary company for me in general. It starts with extraordinary founder. Someone with a team that collectively has both deep technology and product insight as well as deep domain insight. Remember in Zeta's world, I think I think in any AI powered solution, like the core of the value it's not actually algorithms, right? Like the algorithms that beat Go, like all these breakthroughs that we're getting, the ImageNet, like these are algorithms that have been around for 20, 30 years. The breakthrough that is happening is all about the data. Like it's such a misnomer to, to think that, like, oh, it's these rocket scientists coming up with a smarter algorithm. It's not. I mean, tremendous cutting edge work is happening, and it's happening in universities and research labs and in great companies, and it's happening at Facebook and Google and Amazon, can happen in startups. But by and large, what's really like the fact that compute has gotten so cheap and storage has gotten so cheap and data has gotten so abundant is what is enabling these 20 year old algorithms to solve these problems that they couldn't solve 20 years ago. And so, most of the time, where a startup's going to be really successful is not coming up with a better algorithm, it's having command of a data set that nobody else has got. 
Um, so I'm looking for a founding team that has not just deep technology expertise, but deep domain expertise. They really understand and are going to have access to this data. And I'm looking for like you know that unicorn mix of founder qualities, which is like you know the ambition and the humility, the hustle and the thoughtfulness. And I can keep listing contradictory traits. And of course, <laughs> we want all of those in one package. And this founder had it. And then for Zeta companies, we also look for there to be not just AI involved in the implementation. We look for AI to be central to the value proposition, and we look for data network effects. There are definitely AI companies we've looked at where we came away saying, it's a great AI company, I don't think they're going to have a moat. You know, I think recruiting is actually, you know, ironically, I spent so much time on recruiting. I've looked at a lot of companies trying to apply AI to recruiting. I'm, at the moment, you know, this breaks my heart, but at the moment I'm kind of skeptical about whether it's possible to have a data moat in that zone. Because if you think about using AI to match candidates with jobs, you need a, a large source of data about candidates. You need a large source of data about job listings. Well, those exist and they're public, so everybody can get them. And then you also need, it may be possible to get proprietary data about matching. Mm. And it turns out that like it's not enough to have the data about candidates and the data about jobs. You need something indicative of matching, and actually on both sides. You need intent from the employer and from the employee. Anyway, that's a space where I think AI may be able to help, but I think maybe a lot of people are going to be able to build it. I don't know if a startup can have a moat there. Face detection, similar, right? Like It's just going to be commodity. Lots of faces. Lots of faces are out there and available. I mean, labeled faces may be harder to come by, but like if you just want to do like analysis of you know emotions on faces, I mean, data is abundant. So we're looking for not just a smart AI problem, but one where there's going to be proprietary data and data network effects. So we look for that. And then layering on security, I think some of the best background to have if you're going to work on security is actually federal and the three-letter agencies. Like They're just exposed to the most cutting edge and to the, the most interesting problems. At the same time, you know, usually people who've spent their life working in you know, with or for DOD are not necessarily startup-minded. And so um, to find... Like both that kind of you know three letter agency experience with someone who's also had really great startup experience like in one package like that's kind of a unicorn. And then of course the other thing with security is like a, a key factor to understand about this. There's lots of really interesting things about the security market. Like one is that it's it's not a it's not like you have a single budget line item for security and like you have to displace somebody else's security solution to get yourself in there. Like if you can. Demonstrate that you reduce risk or reduce cost. Like you can be a new line item in the budget. And it's also not the case that chief security officers will only buy from one vendor. Like they will buy the best of breed. So there's room for tons and tons. I mean, security, first of all, is not one market, it's many, many markets, but there's also room for lots of winners. But what is hard in security is to even get on the CISO's radar Mm. because their hair is on fire. They're surrounded by problems and they are overwhelmed with. Alerts. And so you need to be, first of all, not contribute to false positives. If you're detecting problems, if you detect any problems that don't exist, you're out of there, right? This is just a, a deal killer because they have too many solutions already that are overwhelming them with alerts. But second of all, you kind of have to be, you know, there's limited attention span because they're so overwhelmed. You kind of have to be on their short list of like the top five or so risks they're worried about. And so I've seen some really interesting companies that are dabbling in areas of security that have been more neglected and they have a much better approach than maybe some of the incumbents. But my concern is that even if they're 10x better than the incumbent, if it's not a problem area that's a top five issue for a chief security officer, like you're not even going to get the chance to make the case. So I knew it had to be something that was high priority. I knew it had to be something that didn't generate lots of false positives. And I knew it needed like all these this impossible alchemy of you know opposing <laughs> qualities, and um, and I saw them all. I want to tie this back to something we were talking about earlier. You said that good venture capitalists have great sourcing, and you said that in the recruiting world, good sourcers have great time management. Is this true for venture capital? Is time management critical for good investment? I'm still a rookie at VC, but I think it might be. It probably depends on stage. It may be that you can also like outsource the time management a little bit. Like maybe a 
partner at a big firm doesn't have to have amazing time management if they have like a little army of associates and other people doing sourcing and they have great time management. I will say if your role is exclusively sourcing, then yes, that element of your work, quality is kind of dominated by time management, given like a baseline, a floor of good judgment. Sure. But I think sourcing is not the only thing we do. Right. And those other things, um, well, like having enough time to do all those other things, like, yeah, I would say time management still amounts to like an essential, like better time management skills is definitely a comparative advantage in VC. And if you have terrible time management skills, uh, you'll struggle. You've been at this for about a year now. What have you learned about time management in that span? What does good time management look like for a venture capitalist? I think it's a combination of discipline and flexibility, maybe. I mean, part of the problem is there's really different rhythms to the work that we do. Like sourcing can mean like sitting down and researching and like sending a bunch of cold emails. But you also need to make time to work on, you know, writing talks so that you can go out there public speaking because I think actually some of the best sourcing comes from the blog posts that we write and the talks that we go give. Like having something interesting to say, you know, capital is a commodity. And if a founder like sees a VC firm and all they see from them is a dollar sign, like it's not very differentiated. There's like speaking of commodities, like capital is the ultimate one, right? So it's in what we have to say, it's in the content and expertise we have that I think we differentiate ourselves, that we tell the story of why a founder should want to come work with us. So I think like that's it's incredibly important to make time for activities like that, even though they may never feel as urgent as like the next meeting. So I think not letting yourselves only do meetings. It's also the case that like you could fill up your calendar with all first meetings, but then when you take a meeting that's really amazing, you want to be able to dive on it. You need slots open so that like you can start making calls, you know, that day. But on the other hand, if you let go of the first meetings, if you get too focused on like, oh, I'm in diligence with three different companies, I don't have time to source this week, you know, then that pipeline dries up and you get this uneven rhythm. So I, I think it's like having being pretty disciplined about like you know seeing a steady diet of of new companies, but having big blocks on your schedule reserved where you can do knowledge work or where you can just sort of overwrite them and say, "Fine, I'm not writing a blog post this week because I've got three companies to diligence." So yeah, like you need blocks of flexibility in a rigidly arranged calendar. I like it, Jocelyn. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was really fun. Thanks, I really appreciate the invitation. Where can our listeners find you? I'm easy to find. I'm Jocelyn at ZettaVP.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders.